I really don't like this passage particularly that I'm speaking from today. And I'm speaking through the whole chapter, 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In fact, I'm not real fond of Luke as a whole other than for the Christmas narrative. And you, you say, well, why? What are you talking about? You know what you're saying? Well, I know it. I know it believe me, I know exactly what I'm saying. But too often in Luke, Luke just bluntly tells me the truth. And I think that's my job. Rather than Luke's job to tell me, I thought it was my job to tell others that. But over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes things for us that confront us. And sometimes they're just really difficult. And the 16th chapter is such a chapter today. I'm actually going to be speaking about what I think the whole chapter is trying to say as opposed just to the 13 first verses, although they certainly get us off in a rousing way. So I have quite a bit of content to share this morning. I'm not going to explain all of it together, but rather as a whole. Because this is a passage about stewardship. This is a passage about how we manage our lives. This is a passage about more than just money. It is a passage about more than just earthly things. It is actually a passage that attempts very directly to make a bridge, if you will, between the way those who follow Christ live on earth and the way things are in heaven or from an eternal reality. This passage that we just heard read by Sydney, read very well, I might add, had a particular earthly perspective. But it also has a very distinct arrow pointing to an eternal perspective. And keeping an eternal focus is, I believe, probably the most difficult thing that Christians do. It's hard to keep eternity forefront in our minds day after day, year after year. You know, sometimes in my wanderings, I kind of uh, really envy some who come to the faith later in life. And you say, isn't that kind of weird to say? Yes, it is a little weird, but I'm in a weird mood. And I envy the, those who come later on Facebook because the, they come along in their 30s or 40s sometimes, maybe even 50 before they accept Christ. But when they do accept him, they come with a holy fire that fills the fire of hell, scorching them in the rear end. Yes, I did say that. Because, you see, they have suddenly realized after many years of living that God is real and that God cares about what they're doing, and the way they've been living, they're going to have an unwelcome end. And so when they come, they come filled with passion, and they only have to sustain that in about 30 years, and they'll probably be gone anyway. Now, you say, what about the part where you envy them? What about a confirmand? A confirmand who gets all into Jesus, and Jesus gets all into the confirmand, falls in love with Christ, But now, as a teenager, they've got to follow Jesus for 70 more years. And they've got to do it through all these different stages of development. Can you remember what you were like when you were a teenager? For some of you, I know that means you've got to go way back. Well, go back with me. Go way back. And remember when you were a teenager. Remember how quickly you made decisions. Remember how quickly they were wrong often. Remember how you expected to be forgiven every time you did them. Remember how you expected nothing bad to happen in your life. Remember those things when you were teenagers? 
They've got to learn all this stuff and still remain faithful for all those years. Whereas if you just start shining brightly all of a sudden, you don't have all that far to be concentrated or focused in on Jesus. But man, if you're young when you make that, that decision, wow, you've got a lot of stuff to plow through, right? Earthly perspectives. What we have is ours. Earthly perspective. What we earned it. Or it was given to us and it belongs to me. Earthly perspective. We can use it as we choose. Because it's mine. Ours. Eternal perspective. What we have is entrusted to us by God who owns it all. Eternal perspective. God cares about how we use what he's given us. I think one of the, one of the clearest things in my mind, and you know, my mind, when you've been in ministry 35 plus years, you begin to have things run together. Last night, Saturday night, I did something we haven't done in a while. We went to an Emmaus candlelight service because one of our dear friends from the past, we met him in Bonham, Texas. His name is Patrick Warren, took his Emmaus walk. About the same age we are, we befriended them when we were there, and they befriended us, rather, as we came to that city uh, as a very young uh, pastor and became fast friends, and we've kept them through the years. And as fate would have it, after we'd been gone for a number of years to Paris and to Frisco, they moved to Frisco because of the loss of a job, and we became friends again in the Frisco church. And then when we did a startling thing, it moved to Carrollton, and we're still friends. But last night, he took his walk. He was only walk to a mass today. And we wanted to go and see him. Now, I don't go to too many candlelights now for a very specific reason. I'm not as young as I once was, and I don't like to stay up late on a Saturday night. About the only exceptions for that, number one is emergencies. If you have to have me late Saturday night, I'll be there as long as you need me. But I expect divine help for that. The second thing is weddings. If you're going to get married on Saturday night, you're going to keep me out too late. I've accepted that. Fortunately, there aren't too many of them a year, so I can get by with it. But once upon a time, I was very active in Emmaus, and I went to candlelight all the time. Had people in the congregations going to candlelight, and so I went to support them. But you know what? I don't like being up late on Saturday night because I have to work Sunday morning, and I usually work a lot of Saturday night in my head. Even when I'm sleeping, I'm dreaming about stuff. And then I get here to preach, and I'm worn out. And as I've gotten older, I'm just crankier. And I thought last night, I don't really care if Patrick's going to candlelight. Patrick's been a Christian for 100 years. What difference does another that's going to candlelight make? But my wife said, we're going to candlelight, right? Yes, dear, we're going. I said, you know, of course, when we get there, if we get there too early, the way candlelight goes, they'll see that I'm there, and they'll ask me to participate in serving communion. And I don't want to work tonight. This is not my work night. You know, I just want to go and be a congregation member. And she said, well, well, we'll stop. And we stopped and we ate. We found out what time candlelight started and we diddled and we dawdled. We sinned. We sinned because we ate a big old piece of chocolate cake when we realized we were going to get there too early. Sally ate most of it, and that's a good... <laughs> oh, you doubters. Did, did you not, Sally? She knew I didn't need it, and we thought then we got there late enough, and we walked into the building. The room was 
packed with the people who were there to see it. I thought, this is perfect. We'll just blend right in. And up comes running one of the pastors who says, I saved a spot for you for a communion. I heard you were coming. <laughs> and I smiled. And Sally, I think she whispered something sorry or something. I don't know. But about the time it was time to serve it after the singing and the things had gotten ready, I said to myself as I was about to go up and lead communion, this is what I was called to do. It doesn't really matter how I feel. What matters is that God called me to do it. And for me to have made an excuse, well, I'm just too tired tonight or I am prepared for it or whatever would have been Shocking to the person who asked me because that person had been my associate pastor for a number of years in another place. And it would have been entirely inappropriate for a pastor because of personal timing not to want to serve the sacraments to anybody who wanted to take them. I say that to say this. We're all human. We all have our moments when earthly perspectives are more important we think, than our eternal perspectives. It's only when we keep our focus on eternal perspectives that we have an opportunity to be the people that God has called us to be as a group and as individuals, to be the person that God has called us to be. Now, this story in Luke 16 and again in the story in Luke 19 are important stories that are encouraging us to claim and to act upon an eternal focus. They are about money at the original focus of the point, but they're about more than money. They're about the stewardship of a life. But they cert- that certainly includes our financial resources. So let's just go quickly through these two stories. First story is about a rich man who had a manager. They all did. And this manager was accused, does it tell us how he was accused, or even if he was guilty, of wasting his possessions. And so he called the manager to him and said, you're, you're, go, you're going to be fired. So go and get all your accounts straightened out because you're done. You're not going to manage my goods anymore. And the man goes off and he starts scheming about what's he going to do now. He's going to starve. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll make a deal by get, cutting everybody's bill and they'll be nice to me when I'm out of a job. We hear that and we just, oh my goodness, that's a terrible story. Here it is right here in the middle of the Bible that they're talking about this guy who's going to scheme and lie and cheat his manager out some more money. And about that place it says, uh, it does tell us that he was guilty, uh, that, he, that he is going to fix it so that he gets a blessing from it. And we're all reading along the scripture going, boy, this guy's going to catch it in the end. And lo and behold, the manager catches him cheating, and the manager walks up to him and says, I commend you for being shrewd and using the resources you had to take care of your future. And you hear the air going out of every Christian's cells. <gasps> what? You're commending that scoundrel for being shrewd? And many of our commentaries are unique. And this is what I love to point out about books that talk to you about the Bible and tell you what the Bible means. They're all important and they're all helpful. But in many of them, they take that stories and they say they believe that's where the parable ends. And here's where advanced scholarship gets them into trouble. If the parable ends there, it might mean one thing. But if you go on and read down through the verses that Cindy read, you find out that Jesus, through the Father, is not applauding the deception of the man 
or the fact that he had taken what was not his. He was applauding the fact that the man had used what was his for eternal purposes, for his own future. And he says, and here's where the, the dagger comes in, why I don't like this passage. He says, the sons of light, daughters of light, ought to do the same, but they don't. They don't use their earthly resources to claim and help them claim what they say is the greatest thing in their life. That is the point of the parable. Not the fact that he was shrewd and that he was a cheater, no. But that he used the things at his disposal to take care of his future. We have a future in heaven with God. Are we taking advantage of what we have on earth to usher us into the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is a good Methodist passage because it ties our eternal consequences into what we've done on earth, not just what we say we believed. This is not a very good passage for those of us who have a Calvinist bent because it clearly ties together in the next parable even more so what's going on in this passage. But the purpose of it, we mustn't lose that, is what he says about use what you have on earth for heavenly benefit, for God's benefit, if you will. Spend your time, your money, your talents, your skills, first and foremost, for the kingdom of God. Couldn't be any more clear. Because what we do on earth has eternal consequences. That's what the story basically is telling us. Now, we are like many commentaries. We might go, what? That last part was just added to soften the first. No, it wasn't. It wasn't added for any reason. It's been in the Bible since the Bible was put together. I don't care what scholarship tells us. It obviously explains what happened before it and ties you to the Scripture coming after it. It is a part of Scripture. That Jesus was not commending the scoundrel except in the fact that he used his current resources for future benefit. And he says that children of light need to be careful to do the same thing. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, you're not listening. It is a very powerful, right-in-the-face kind of passage that should threaten every American Christian on the face of the earth. It should threaten every European Christian on the face of the earth, every Asian Christian on the face of the earth, and every, all the other people groups in between. This is a challenging passage of Scripture. Now, he ends that little passage of Scripture with a, with a verse that we just, wow, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve mammon and God. I'm going to come back to that. Now, let's look at the second story. This is a short story. Verses 14 through 18, and people wonder what it's even doing there sometime. I think it's in there mainly for the first part of the verse. Because the first part of the verse that you didn't have read for you today says this. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at Jesus. That's the context, the same context before that we talked about last week in the in the uh, being lost parables. Here we're talking about in terms of our wealth on earth. These Pharisees were lovers of money. Not all Pharisees, these Pharisees. It particularizes what it said. It's not saying that every Pharisee is a lover of money any more than it's saying every Christian is a lover of money. 
It's just saying that these Pharisees were lovers of money, and that is why that Jesus was teaching these parables. And then he comes to this, the second parable, the third step in this journey on this passage of Scripture, and he tells a story we know well. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. How many times have we heard the story about rich man and Lazarus in our life? Could you hear it anymore? I mean, we know it by heart, right? Here's this rich guy who is living in luxury every day of his life. That's a pretty powerful statement, strong statement. And every day in his life, probably, he goes in and out his doors, the gates of his house, if you will. And every day he goes out, there's a beggar with sores lying at his door. This beggar is just hoping to get some of the scraps that they would throw out from their table. Now, that's a meaningful passage if you understand how they ate back then. Uh, oftentimes then, when they ate, they ate bread in hunks. You know, they were given bread, and they just took hunks of it. And then when they were kind of through with it, or they wanted a different piece, they would wipe their greasy hands and throw the bread on the ground where a dog or a hungry person might gather that spoil to eat. The scripture says he would have been glad just to have what they were pitching from the table for his hungry body. But evidently, he was not being seen by the people of that household, not only the, the, the owner, but the ser- other servants as well, I suppose, because he was still starving. Now, what happens here happens every day in life. In fact, we just write this one down. This guy who was sick and hungry and starving died. But so did the rich guy. By the way, the rich guy is not named, but Lazarus is. There's a whole sermon about that, but we're not doing that one this morning. They both died, and the story picks up in eternity. Now, I'm not getting all crazy about this passage, although it says the, the rich guy is in a hot place. And in fact, it's so hot that his mouth is burning up with pain. A little subtle reminder that eternity is real for you, whether it's in heaven or it's in hell. Sometimes people forget that thought. But eternity is in store for all of us. But your destination? Mm-hmm. We're getting back to that. In this story, the rich man was in hell, and Lazarus was in heaven sitting at the bosom of Abraham. And just like a good rich man would do, <laughs> when, when the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom, he says, Send, send Lazarus over here. Send Lazarus. You know that servant, that beggar at my door? Send that guy with the water. and Just touch the tip of my tongue so I can just get a little bit of help. Send Lazarus. Nope. Can't do that, Abraham says. You know, where you are, you are. And where we are, we are. In other words, what you've done is put you where you are. And Lazarus won't be bringing you relief. The next thing that comes out of his thoughts, well, if that's the case, and this thing is for real, then send Lazarus to tell my five brothers on earth about what hell is like and then so that they can change their ways. Short, long story made short. No, can't do that either because what happens on earth is on earth, and although it has eternal consequences, They will not listen to Lazarus if I sent Lazarus any more than they listened to Moses and the prophets. Wow. You having a big time with this passage? You enjoying this? I mean, this, this sounds tough. 
This doesn't sound like the goody-goody Jesus that we hear about so often. I mean, surely the people aren't going to suffer forever. Only if the scripture is true. Every person that you think about that's going to hell, you say, well, it's a shame they won't be with God. Uh, No, it's not just a shame. It's eternal punishment. That's why one of the reasons why the soul of every person is so important. Suffering for an eternity because of the consequence of our sins is not a thought that we're very comfortable thinking about. Are you comfortable thinking about it? Who would wish that on anybody? We would want to be moved at that point to do something. Now, the point of this third parable, or this second parable of these three little vignettes, is that we are to use our resources to help the poor out of hearts of compassion. We are to see them and not look over them when they're all around us. And the question becomes, are we really seeing the needy in our lives? Now, the danger of wealth is a continual topic in the Gospel of Luke, and I guess that's why it bothers me. If it would have been okay with me if they would just defined wealth. I'm clear that some of you should be worried about this passage because you're wealthier than I am. And so you're wealthy and I'm not. I'm clear about that. So I hope you are all listening if you're one of those people. Now, I'm not so clear or not I'm so comfortable with it. Some of you may not make as much money as Sally and I make. And that makes me wealthier than them. So that means that passage is for me. I don't particularly like that take on the story. Because here's what it does. It never explains what wealth is in detail, does it? It doesn't. And that's one of the reasons I struggle with it. Come on, Lord, give me some concrete stuff. How, much, how many American dollars is it all right for a pastor to earn? And I'll be good with that. Just tell me what it is. Don't leave it for me to decide. Don't leave it for the SPRC to decide. Just give us some rules here. But that's not what happens. We have to determine from those of us who have little to those of us who have luxury every day of our lives, whether we're talking about comparing ourselves to the people of the world or the people of our church or the people of our city, who are we comparing ourselves to? But I think what it really says might be boiled down to that idea of wealth. If you have something that someone needs for survival and you have more of it than you have to have, then compared to that beggar, you're wealthy. There is a level at which every one of us can take what we have and give it to those who have less. And that's a hard thing to deal with if you're an American and you're a capitalist and you've worked hard for what you have and you ought to have a right to spend it the way you choose. Actually, God says you don't have that right, but he gives you that right anyway and to see what we do with it. This is a passage that causes contemplation and struggle that we are held accountable for how we deal with the poorest around us. Our lifestyle has implications in heaven, eternal implications of what we do here on earth. And you say, preacher, this is not a very much fun sermon anymore. Be jovial. Tell me a joke. Make some fun. 
sorry. I'm sorry. This passage doesn't leave place for that. Because for a huge percentage of every one of us, I'd say almost everyone, we are all wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And so this teaching is important. Let's go back right quickly to the three. The first parable, be shrewd. Use your resources for eternal purposes. The second one is being a lover of money blinds you as it blinded those Pharisees that he was talking to. Not all Pharisees, those Pharisees. It blinds you to the poor and the hurting around you. And third, how we use our resources has eternal consequences in our lives. Now, this reminds me of other scriptures. Uh, using our resources in that first story. Remember Moses? And when he was all bumfuzzled with God and God was talking to him about delivering the people, and he said, how am I going to do all that? They won't listen to me. And, and, and God spoke to him from the bush and says, what's that in your hand? What was it? He was a shepherd. It was his staff. Throw it on the ground. He did. Put your hand in your breast and pull it out. Oh, my gosh, it's white. It's leprous. Put it back in again and pull it out. It's not. These are the things you have at your disposal because of who you are. Every one of us is a different and unique person, and we have resources that have to be stewarded. We have to use our talents, our learnings, our giftedness, our spiritual gifts, and yes, our wealth that we've had access to, we have to use all of that in a way that has an eternal focus and ask God what we should do. This means that how what we purchase and how we live has an impact. And it's never an easy question for those of us who have a lot to answer. It's not. It's a hard question. And it's constantly before us. But I do believe that the constant struggle with that and knowing that we're sinful is the important part. If we're not struggling with that at all, then we have a real problem. We have a problem that's so deep-seated it probably can't be moved. And it's texts like these that I think are at the heart of the gospel and also at the heart of the prophets in the Scriptures. To whom much is given, much is required, as was spoken in Luke 12 in the 48th verse. What you're given and the talents you have, God expects you to use them. God calls upon you to use them. And they're to be used for the benefit of the things that the kingdom of God is pointing toward. That's why I don't understand sometimes when my brothers and sisters in Christ say things that cause me pain. Now, they're sometimes disguised as political things, and I always hesitate to do that because not all of you are perfect as I am in my political thoughts. And that worries me for you. But by the way, I've had a little revelation lately. I, I was sent from an email. Someone sent me and I read it. And I'm still thinking about it. James Dobson had the gall to say that neither one of our candidates made him feel good. How, I don't know how he would come to that conclusion. But I probably will be clear Monday night if you're watching TV on that channel. But what he also said is he was very clear that God was good at using terrible characters all throughout the Bible for God's purposes. And I brightened up at that. I thought, yes, that's right. So, so whichever one of these bum fuzzlers gets elected will probably survive because one of those bum fuzzlers is going to get elected. 
And I'm not excited about either one of them. But the good news is, God can act through even them, right? Good. I'm glad we're on that page together. Now, since we're to take what we have and use it for the benefit of those who have not, we're good with taxes, right? Because when we pay our taxes, it builds roads for everybody. We're good with spending our taxable money on military to protect us as we even protect others around the world. Because if you have the strength to protect someone, you're, you're called upon to do it. If you're around somebody who's being bullied, you need to come to the one who's being bullied's side and stand against that bully, right? We're good with using our resources. So when we have excess in a nation as great as ours, we're good with giving it away to nations where people are starving to death. Please save both of us a hard hour or so, and don't complain to me about how much aid we send to people who turn around and send back bullets. We just need to send more aid. More love. More obvious concern for their living situation versus ours. We don't need to send less. We don't need to be hoarders of the greatest amount of wealth that the world has ever known. That's not good for us eternally. So when we're taxed or when our government is helping nations in crisis, it's hard for me to say that's a bad thing. I'm sorry. If it means I have to pay more taxes, quite frankly, in comparison to the rest of the world, I can afford to pay more taxes. Don't turn my name into the IRS. I'll do that if I want it done, okay? But the reality is that's something we face every day when we give away huge amounts of money. We oftentimes think, well, couldn't we use that here? Sure, we can always use it here. We need a lot more, right? Just think about what that means in light of this passage. It's also true that the church is involved in relief ministries. Many times people tell me, well, that's the church's job anyway, not the government's. Yeah, but the churches don't do a good enough job that the government can step back. There you go. We're not that good at it. Most of every budget in the world is spent on the people who are already at church. We're not that good on taking care of the poor. We're, we do a lot of good stuff, but it's not enough. Even with the government and us, through our church organizations, giving and giving, there are still many suffering people in the world. Some of them may be right outside your doorstep, right on the street corner where you stop every day. Oh, I know. I don't want to give that guy money. He's probably making $50,000 a year standing on that street corner asking for help. It could be. He could also be starving. But he might take it and use it for something to drink. It could be. But sometimes one drink to get to the next day is what allows a person to be saved the following day instead of taking their life. We just don't know. What we do know is that we have something extra to give somebody who needs it or acts like they need it. What we do with that money might have more to say about us than it does about them. At least it did for the rich man in this story, didn't it? And lastly, it makes a difference what we as individuals do in touching other people's lives. When we give to them out of what is ours, above and beyond what we give to the church and to the government to help them, we are making a statement. We are saying, I care about you, I love you, I want to help you. Now, I'm not a great big proponent of money only. I think we need to 
talk to them. We need to make them tell their story. And if the story gets all wound up and it's obvious they're lying, then we need to tell them, your story is bad. You should get a better one. I'm going to give you some money in a few minutes, but before I do, I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about what efforts you're making to change your life. And then we need to give them the money after that talk. What we do as individuals matters. It matters to God. I'm sorry, I don't have a slide rule. I've got a little thing, and I can figure out what the payment is on any amount of money, percentage-wise, per thousand. A banker gave it to me once. I love that little slide thingy. You know, you turn the wheel that says the interest rate, and turn up what, how, how, how long the payments are going to be, and it tells you how much it's going to cost per thousand. Man, I love that little calculator. I love knowing what my car payment is going to be before I, I get the car a house payment or a loan. If we take who we are and ask God what God wants us to do each day with who we are and what we have and what our makeup is, God will lead us to people that we can make a difference in their lives to. If we don't realize that we have something that needs to be given away, then we are in danger of having a hard heart, not a soft heart, but a hard heart. And it just doesn't turn out well in Scripture eternally for those of us who are claiming to be Christians but are hanging on to a hard heart. I want all of you to be in heaven with me. We're, we're going to have a constant party on my cloud. And if you like partying, we're going, to have, we're going to be getting down regularly in heaven. I don't know exactly how that works, but I'm convinced we're going to be doing that. It's going to be for joy at all, all that God has forgiven because God forgives us. At those moments when I've been bad, when I have purposely looked away from the guy walking towards my window wanting $10, and I just didn't want to do it. God forgive me, because that $10 would not have changed my life. Not at all. I don't know what he would have done with it, or she would have done with it. Sometimes it's a she. But since it wouldn't have mattered to me except I was saying to God, God, I'm investing this in one of your children. I hope they use it well. There's so much. I'm not trying to raise money for all those standing on corners today. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying what we give is not about the person getting it as much as it is about us, about our hearts. I want to pray for me and you today. Gracious God, I thank you that you've given us so much. We are blessed beyond our wildest expectations. And yet, Lord, we do struggle even in the midst of this blessing and plenty, we struggle. We struggle to keep our jobs. We struggle to get enough money together to think that we'll be able to feed ourselves and not have to depend on our children in retirement. We struggle. We struggle to have a home and keep it up. We struggle, Lord. And yet we do realize that we are struggling at a level that almost the rest of the world would love to have our struggle. Father, 
whoever we are as individuals, use whatever we have that you've given us. And let us be mindful to use all those resources intentionally for your purposes. Let us be focused on the kingdom of God. There's one here, Lord, who needs that help, who needs to be focused on you, needs to come to you. Move them to come so today. If there's one here today, Lord, who's looking for a church home where they can continue to pray and to study and be supported in living the Christian life and wants to do it hand in hand with others, let them come and become a part of this believing body. As we stand in to sing, Lord, let us bear our souls to you so that you can forgive us and so that you can commend us to the future work that you're calling us to be in, whatever the day may hold. For it's in Christ's name I pray to these your people.